the Canadian Military History Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Lacroix. Music provided by the 48th Highlanders of Canada. Today's guest, Brigadier General Rob Roy McKenzie, CD, Deputy Commander of the 3rd Canadian Division. Physical fitness, musketry, and battlecraft superimposed with leadership, and it's still it's there in my head today. I've said it often, but truly, those uh, are some of the basics of uh, good soldiering. Right? Welcome to the Canadian Military History Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Lacroix. Before I get back to the interview with General McKenzie, I would like to cover off something that was discussed during the first part of the episode. One of the things we discussed was pre-deployment training. Pre-deployment training for a high-tempo operation such as Afghanistan is typically somewhere between 18 to 24 months long. It depends on what role you're playing and how that mission is expected to pan out. Whereas other pre-deployment training or other missions, for example, small missions, just spend a few weeks in Kingston just reviewing some of the basic tactics to keep you safe and learning a little bit about the culture that you're about to be immersed in. Without a doubt, for General McKenzie's first deployment to Afghanistan, he went through the road to high readiness in order to prepare for a high tempo of operation. Since he did his tours essentially back-to-back, he didn't need to go through that entire road to high readiness all over again. What he simply had to do was just refresh some skills and make sure that any updates to the situation were provided to him before he deployed. So small missions or individual augmentees would typically go through Kingston, through the Peace Support Training Center, and that's where we ended up meeting. Here's the rest of the episode with Brigadier General Rob Roy McKenzie. I will speak about the others, and that is Major Kennedy, and as I alluded to, he truly trained a generation of infantry officers. He lived, breathed, ate, and slept the infantry, for sure. He was with us all the time, right from the start, day one, the first major company run that we did on our phase training. Uh, he was there uh, leading from the front and, and involved in everything uh, that we were doing, and just truly a leader in every sense of the word, an example. That was not the only summer training where he was a leader. So I did my, my first phase of training when you started everything at the section level and then my phase two, as they called it then, and phase three, the, the platoon commander's phase. Uh, he was OC of leadership company there as well, and he focused a lot at that time on, on developing platoon commanders. Dismounted, that was a dismounted phase, a dismounted platoon commander. And he came from the Black Watch through the Airborne Regiment and the RCRs. A role model for me, knowing that was sort of where I wanted to go in my career uh, as a dismounted paratrooper, light infantryman type. He was a great role model to, to all of us, but specifically for me, I identified with that. Identified with the way he led folks from his physical example when it came to BT and everything that we did like that. Shooting, and they had a phrase, a physical fitness musketry and battlecraft superimposed with leadership and it's still it's there in my head today i've said it often but truly uh those are some of the basics of uh, good soldiering and that you know that that stuck with me throughout my entire career even when i went back to be an instructor on that same course uh, years later phase three infantry i just I, I remember his example and tried to tried to do the same absolutely the third uh fellow I mentioned was uh, one officer Scotty Cowan from the Patricias and he really worked hard at training us at being uh, good shots uh, with a rifle. I had a bit of training from my father when I was a kid and uh, I guess a bit of a, a bit of an aptitude I'll say. At that time we had 25 meter ranges uh, on the base right in behind our shack so just Pretty much every morning we were out there after PT in the first little bit shooting our FN rifles. We got his coaching, got to 
quite good quite quickly. And I remember sort of our Friday afternoon long runs, we'd be driven out to a range or we'd be somewhere else for a number of the weeks. The, the top section would uh, get on the truck and ride back. And he took great pride that a few of those weeks, it was our more than one of those weeks, it was our section that was sort of the top shots of the week. Again, he was another example of, of someone who was a, a down-to-earth leader, identified, took care of every one of us was interested in that and, and, and again I identified with him from his background and right away he, he came to me and, and said here's he showed me a C4 tattoo and said in the third generation my father and grandfather were in the C Force and I wasn't unique even though there was a, a tie that way um, you know he really took after, uh, took care of, of all of us and, and again was a great role model and very good at certain skill sets that, that we were learning and, and a great coach at that so I really have to, to lump those three together as memorable individuals that had a huge huge influence uh, on me in the early stages that gave me great leadership examples as I was starting my career as a young officer. Absolutely. And what a great privilege it must have been to just be able to pick up your rifle and go behind the shacks and just fire off. I mean, just this afternoon, I did the very same thing at work. I have a range where I work and at York Regional Police, and I had a little bit of downtime, a little bit of idle time, and I just loaded up some mags, practiced a little bit of marksmanship, did a little bit of self-improvement, and then swept up my brass, and I was back to what was next on my schedule. And I remember those days at Fort York Armory as well, when we used to shoot in the basement of Fort York Armory, a very short range throw the 22 insert into the FN and we do a little bit of marksmanship at the beginning of a parade night. Yeah, the simulation that we have now in SAP, uh, small arms trainers or SAP trainers are very good. You have to obviously complement that with live fire training, but that's, I think, in today's technology uh, where we can go to, to develop great skills and decision-making as we go to sort of scenario-type engagements, not just marksmanship on those trainers because that for soldiers to be able to make decisions in a sort of a shoot, no-shoot scenario, if I can put it that way. Certainly. On the simulation side of things, there's great training value in that. But uh, we move forward and change with the world we have. And, and I think <laughs> you're doing, doing great uh, simulation training, but you still have to, uh, to get out to the, to the range and do the live fire. Absolutely, sir. Sir, we're on to the last question. What was the greatest challenge you had to overcome? I alluded to this a little bit earlier, and that was uh, speaking to my first tour in Afghanistan in 2009 in Kandahar. So I was there from February through November of 2009. And I'll just, uh, again, I'll frame a bit of a bit of context. So I was asked to go, General Vance uh, was at the time uh, one brigade commander, and he was mounting the, uh, the high readiness headquarters. So 509, we were designated to be in, in Joint Task Force Afghanistan headquarters. So we did about uh, seven months uh, road to high readiness training as a headquarters, you know, and a fair bit of professional development to understand the mission. I, I thought I understood some things when I started and knew that I, I needed to educate myself. So that, that seven months was critical in some of the uh, professional development training we did for senior leaders in the headquarters was was fantastic but I, I went into I was asked specifically uh, to go into the job partly because of it was because of my background partly because of my regular army background and having was leaving command of the C4 Highlanders of Canada so I transferred to the reserve from the, the regular army. Spent some time as a company commander and NCO in the, in the reserves. But in my uh, in 2000 is when I transferred and I became a, a police officer in the city of Vancouver. I held a number of sort of secondary duties and patrol duties and, and then on our emergency response team. So it was my army background and police background together that had me asked to do the job. And it was the officer commanding an organization called the uh, Operations Coordination Center Provincial Kandahar. So at the time, 
in Afghanistan, each province was developing, and there were various stages of development, these organizations, coordination centers at the provincial level to bring together the Afghan police, the Afghan army, and their intelligence agency. That was primarily the aim so that they could carry on with sort of this joint security construct, but link it to the the governor of the province as well. And in our case, uh, during that time with the coalition for, for sharing of information and resources and priorities, et cetera. When I went in, there'd been, I guess it was two previous Canadian rotations. So it had come through some development and Kandahar, it was a little further developed than other provinces in the country. Some were just starting. This one had been in place now for, uh, in the neighborhood of 18 months. The first group were uh, Americans and it was it was uh, less developed than uh, through the Canadian context. But the time frame, uh, now I'll, I'll speak to, it was, was very critical. So we were coming into the year of the presidential election in 2009 on a very tumultuous campaign season and, and ultimately the inflow, the biggest inflow of, or the start of the inflow of, of U.S. forces into the South. We saw when I arrived in theatre, we had Canadian Joint Task Force in Kandahar, a British contingent in Helmand Province next to us, and a presidential election looming on the horizon. U.S forces started to inflow uh, for the, uh, the time of the election, and we eventually ended up with a very significant and robust uh, U.S. presence in Kandahar to support what we were doing there, as well as in Helmand Province with the Marines. So, you know, I think a ballpark number of about tenfold increase in forces, as well as building uh, Afghan security forces. And the aim at that time uh, was to have the OCCP, Operations Coordination Center Provincial, become the hub for election security. So we spent, we meaning me and my team, uh, we lived and worked in Kandahar City in a place uh, at the governor's palace. So we lived and worked with Afghans uh, day to day, everything from Afghan police, senior officers to Afghan army officers to uh, a colonel from their national director to security, as well as a, a mullah provincial communications officer and, and our other staff there and with the governor sort of daily and on a weekly basis. And we set into a cycle and with my team built a cycle of sort of a weekly cycle of briefing the governor and other coalition together and being part of understanding what that weekly security meeting would do onto a, a working group that looked at priorities for the city under and that is where the major population was under the, the Afghan police and police chief de facto for the province and the, and the city, his, uh, his chief of security. So actually one of the deputies was sort of de facto Kandahar City Police Chief, even though he wasn't that in name. Right. And then uh, through an, you know, a set of intelligence work and prioritization for patrols, working together, supporting each other. So this was a, a genesis that we did as a team and with the Afghans, as well as supporting the election security planning. So that was the Independent Electoral Commission, the uh, IEC. So they were planning where polling stations would be and how we could secure them and so on and so forth, with the police and the army supporting uh, the police. So all of that to say, again, that was, that was about a 10-month tour. It, it was a huge challenge to bring people together who, at that time, there was not necessarily the greatest relationships between the police and the army sometimes. I know there's still sort of some of that, but I think certainly on my second tour, two years later, it didn't seem to be at the same level as at that time. Police hadn't come as, as far uh, in their development in 2009 as, as they did two years later in 2011. But to bring them all together in election security planning and then priorities for the city just on a day-to-day or week-to-week basis is more like what we were doing, and really have a functioning 24-7 and joint coordination center by the time uh, we ended with, I think, of the traditional continental staff being one, two, three, four, and and six branches, really, to support what what the Afghans were doing, both from a police and army perspective, together. And we were able to actually achieve that focused on the election security. Now, a whole other thing, uh, I'm not speaking about the actual election or counting ballots or any of that process. That's not something we did, and, you know, there there were some 
issues there that history bears out, but that, that wasn't our focus. Our focus was security so that Afghans could get to the polls safely. And in the main, uh, that's what happened. We didn't have, we had major incidents leading up to and after, but on election day, the majority of people in Kandahar could get to the, the polls safely to do their job, or to, to vote, I should say, and the police uh, and the army. Uh, did their job right and that was a huge challenge to bring to bring that together and then to keep it functioning afterwards as well and it's still in my second mm-hmm. tour these organizations were still there and functioning and in kandahar uh, you know the way we were functioning with a 24 and 7 model with duty officers of the army and the police uh, provincial communications officer as well as coalition working together in a 24 7 kind of basis and doing you know daily briefs you know, what we would call a commander's update brief kind of brief we really uh, came a long way and to see that as a model and, and we had some uh, you know, folks from what would later be my organization two years later come right. to see what we were doing. It could be a bit of a model. So, I mean, we had some great success, but not without huge challenges to you know, overcome all kinds of personalities as we work together, uh, work with the, the governor and, and district leaders and so on and so forth in a, uh, in a very tumultuous time in the South and a, and a critical time, I think. And again, history will bear out that that was a critical turning point uh, in the South. It followed on with other things and, and major efforts in the South, but I think helped make Southern Afghanistan and Afghanistan as a whole a better place for sure. Just to touch on that experience, sir, I believe that you relieved my current brigade commander, Colonel Dwayne Hobbs, in that post. That's exactly right. He was there uh, for the previous sort of nine months prior to my tour, and they had done some great work in setting up, especially some of the intelligence work and sharing and whatnot, and, and went through some difficult times as well. The uh, Sarposa prison break in Kandahar during That's the right. tour. They did great work, and his team was not quite as robust as mine. You know, I started with about the same, but uh, over time I was given uh, some more folks and which really made a huge difference and we were able to to build things from a, a day-to-day working basis to a you know a 24 and 7 working piece so as well as the afghans put some more effort into it as well giving more sort of police officers and, and, and army officers to work in this sort of coordination center as we move to the election so uh, yeah it was a great great experience to to take over from from doing as well absolutely sir Sir, we've come to the end of the episode. Is there anything you'd like to say just to summarize? I think if I could, I, I, I look forward now in the job I'm in as 3rd Division Deputy Commander. I do have many responsibilities across that division, but uh, some specific focus to reserve collective training and individual training, that type of thing. And really where we're at in, in uh, our reserve individual training redesign and actually starting some more efficient work to make courses better for reservists, more efficient for from a training perspective as well to get people what they need in a timely manner, how we're going to do that. And, and some of that will actually be in effect this summer for our you know, first level DP1, as they're called, the development period one courses for, for soldiers, as well as our new collective training regime and looking out where, where do we need to go now in today's Army as a whole and how does the Army Reserve fit in the future construct of the, the Canadian Army. So I, I look forward to this. Again, great opportunity comes out of that at this, again, what is a kind of a, a critical time for the Army and the, the Canadian forces as we look to now, how do we look to the future and new new environments, new threat environments, where we are in Canada today and so on and so forth. So to be part of that and to support our soldiers and young leaders today in a more efficient way through our individual training process, I think is a great step forward and I look forward to being part of that. So there's a bit of a plug for uh, you know how we move forward in, in supporting our, our folks in the reserve as they take their summer training and, and make it better for them and also a little more friendly when it comes to getting time off work and so on, a little bit more predictability if I can put it that way. All I have to say, it's a truly 
I'm starting my, I guess it's 29 years here uh, in the Army. And it's it's been an honour to serve with great Canadians, not only in Canada, but abroad. We have what I believe to be the greatest institution in the Canadian Armed Forces in Canada. Our great young soldiers, sailors, airmen and women, as well as our great Canadian young leaders that really are, are our future. And it's just been my honour to be part of that through my, uh, through my professional life. Absolutely, sir. Sir, thank you very much for taking the time to be a guest on the show. I really enjoyed our chat and I enjoyed working with you on not only the pre-deployment training, but on our many strategic planning sessions at the national level. Well, thank you very much. Great opportunity. And just to share a bit of the stories is great, but to also be able to speak well about all our uh, our great folks in the, in the Canadian Armed Forces. I thank you for the opportunity. You're very welcome, sirs. Just so you know, after we say goodbye, it'll be the regimental march of the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry. Fantastic. Goodbye, sir. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to the Canadian Military History Podcast. I hope that you've enjoyed this episode. If you did enjoy the podcast, please leave some feedback on iTunes. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please send me an email at mikelacroixcmhp at gmail.com. Please let me know if you'd like me to read your comments on the air. While you're waiting for our next episode, please visit the website at www.canadianmilitaryhistorypodcast.ca or the CMHP Facebook page. If you'd like to support the podcast by making a donation, please click the PayPal link on the webpage. The next time you're considering buying something from Amazon.ca, please visit the Canadian Military History Podcast website and click on my Amazon link. A small portion of your purchase goes directly towards the support and maintenance of the podcast. However, your great price from Amazon doesn't change. All donations will go directly into the production of the podcast. All music is used with the express permission of the commanding officer. End tag music is provided by the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry. Views and opinions are those of the guests of the Canadian Military History Podcast and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Mike Lacroix Productions, the Government of Canada, or the Department of National Defence. This is a Mike Lacroix Production.